0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you have a Bible, open up to Nehemiah chapter 10. Getting towards the end of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, look under the seat in front of you. And uh, we have a Bible for you. You can turn to page 230. And uh, you'll be able to track with us uh, in this really interesting passage uh, of Scripture today. Um, If you don't own a Bible, then you just take that with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible, and uh, we're glad that you could be with us today. My name is Craig. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And I just joined my voice to uh, Rob saying, thanks for coming. It's our joy to have you with us, and I, I hope this text will uh, be relevant for you today. Let me, let me tell you what's going on coming up to chapter 10, so in case you haven't been here, or we weren't in Nehemiah last week, we had a guest preacher, so it's been, uh, we've been out of it for a little bit, a couple weeks anyway. But what's happening is that at this, see, this time in the book, uh, what we're reading about is how uh, God is renewing his people. He is restoring them. He is reviving them. The first chapters of the book were about building a wall, chapters one through six. But beginning in chapter seven through the end of the book, it's about building a people. God built a wall so that the people, or led the people to build a wall to protect their city, Jerusalem, so the people could move back. But his ultimate intention was to build a people. And this is how it began back in chapter eight the priest Ezra stood up and read the Bible. The people asked for him to read the Bible. They weren't, uh, some of them weren't that familiar, perhaps, with the text of the Bible. And Nehemiah got up and read for half a day. And as he read the Bible, a renewal took place. God, people heard God's word, and they were affected. They began to weep. They began to realize they had sinned against their God. And and, and, and the leader said, no, this is not a day of weeping. This is a day to celebrate that we're hearing God's word. And they read about this festival of booths that God had talked about in the Bible. And it was a one-week celebration of joy, really. And so they went and did this seven-day festival of joy in response to God's word. That was chapter 8. In chapter 9... What they do is they come back and they repent a day later. They review their whole history of of knowing God, and this is their conclusion. God has always been faithful to us, even when we are not faithful. Even in our turning from him, God never dropped us. Even when we turned away, he never turned away from us. Even when we were faithless, he was faithful. uh, Chapter 9, verse 33 really summarizes uh, that whole chapter. It says, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. So they are moved to change because they consider how good God has been. I don't know if you knew this, but when you hear of the goodness of God and that grips your heart, it will lead you to change, to obey him, to turn to him. And that's exactly what happens here. At the end of that chapter, 9, chapter 9, verse 38, it says, Because of all of this, because of God's history to us and his faithfulness, we make a firm commitment in writing on the sealed document or the names of our priests, our Levites, I'm sorry, our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they say, God, you've been faithful to your covenant to us. We haven't, but we're going to renew our commitment to you. And so we're going to sign a document that says this represents our renewal of our relationship with you. And then in chapter 10, that's what we're looking at today, verses 1 through 27 are the names of all the leaders that signed. I'm going to let you read that on your own. These are the signatories of of those who agreed to this covenant. And then in verse 28, we find out what all the people committed themselves to in light of God's mercy. So let's read this passage beginning, chapter 10, beginning in verse 28. This is God's word. The rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground." For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the tithes, a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that even as we come under your word today, that that, uh, we would not neglect the house of our God, that we would, Lord, that we would be responsive to you, that you would build something for your glory among us as a people, you would build us as a people for your glory and that, uh, that we would be a light in the darkness to those around us. Spirit of God, come and bring this ancient text to our lives today. Bridge the centuries and show us the principles that, uh, that you call us to today. Lord, thank you that when we have been faithless, you are faithful, and that is our hope. That is our security. We rest not on our obedience, but on the obedience of our Savior, Jesus, and his death and his resurrection. We invite you, Lord, to come and speak to us and give us soft hearts, listening ears, and responsive wills. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new to the Bible, or even if you're not, even if you're not new to the Bible, wow, there's a a lot of stuff in here that you might not have even known was in the Bible. Uh, there are a uh, lot of practices um, that are historic, uh, some of them tied specifically to Israel and the city of Jerusalem, but there is much in this passage that uh, is very relevant to us today by principle. Uh, so while some of the specifics may change, the principle and this passage are relevant for us today. Here's the general idea. Based on all that God has done for them, what they are saying in this covenant, in this commitment, they are saying all the people commit to obey all of God's law. All the people commit to obey all of God's law. So even though verses 1 through 27 are these certain people who are signing the covenant, it represents everyone. Verse 28, the rest of the people... So they're all committing to this together. Uh, verse 28, all who have separated themselves from the peoples uh, of the lands to the law our God. Verse 28 again, all who have knowledge and understanding. It lists the people, their wives, their sons, their daughters. The emphasis in verse, verses 28 and 29 is to say this is something that everyone committed to. That They're having this communal moment, this beautiful season of renewal and revival where it's not a few committed people coming down and making some kind of a commitment to God, but God has invaded the hearts of all of his people, and they stand as one person before him, and they commit, Lord, we will obey all of your law. Look at how they say it, verse 29, that they, they make a commitment to walk in God's law that was given to Moses. And then they, they say it a different way, to observe all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. It's as if a light has come on for them. They have been wandering in the darkness and now they have heard God's word and they are saying, Lord, we must respond to you. We must respond to who you are. We must to respond to what you have done for us. And what they're really doing when all the people Commit to obey all of God's law, what they are really doing is that they are committing to put God first in their lives. When they say we commit to obey your law, they say no longer will we determine our own pathway, no longer will we define our own ethical practices, no longer will we just do what we want to do or what the nations around us are doing or what seems right in our own eyes, to borrow a phrase from the book of Judges. Rather, Lord, we will do what you want us to do, for you have all Always been faithful to us. Now here's the thing that I want to point out that's so commitment that's so important. When they commit to put God first in their lives, it is not merely a vague emotional sentimental sort of response. This isn't the last night of camp where everybody's crying, even though they don't know why they're crying, or whatever, standing around the fire. Uh, If you went to the same camps I did growing up, standing around the fire, crying, making a commitment that lasts about 20 minutes until we get into the bunks uh, that evening. Now, certainly many people are saved at camps. I'm all for that. Uh, And many people make deep commitments, but many don't. Many have an emotional experience that doesn't lead to commitment, and often that is because it never goes gets spelled out with specifics general senses of i love god and want to serve him uh, they never last it's when we drill down and say this is what specific life change will look like in my life if i repent there will be specific changes in my patterns of life, in my decisions, and in my actions. Godliness works itself out in specifics. And so they commit to real specifics. And this isn't legalism. They're not committing to specifics so that God will have favor on them. They're not committing to specific actions of obedience in his word so that somehow they will earn his blessing. Chapter 9 has been all about, we have blown it and you have blessed us. We have been unfaithful and you have been merciful. It is a response to please the Lord based on what he has already done for them. It is not legalism. It is a response of obedience and gratitude and worship to God and a decision to be different than the nations around them so that they stand out as a light in the darkness and God fulfills his mission through them. So don't assume that specific commitments to specific actions are somehow legalistic. They could be, but not necessarily. It's the motive that matters, and their motive is to glorify the Lord. So they commit to putting God first because God has shown relentless love to them. They commit in three areas here, three broad areas. They commit to putting God first with their families. They commit to putting God first with their time. They commit to putting God first with their resources. And so we're going to look at each of those. First with their families, first with their time, first with their resources. First with their families. Or you could say, uh, they say, God, we could put you first in our marriages. Uh, But it has implications for the whole family, the decision that they make. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for Our sons. Here's the commitment they're making We will not intermarry with foreigners. We will not intermarry with foreigners, those who surround us. Our sons and our daughters will only marry Jews. Now, You may be thinking, this sounds, by today's standards, a bit narrow, doesn't it? I mean, it does. It sounds a bit narrow to our cultural ears. I mean, honestly, couldn't there even be a sort of underlying ethnocentric or even racist sort of idea underlying that commitment? Are they saying, we are committed to staying ethnically pure, because whenever you hear the language of someone committing to staying ethnically pure, the idea of ethnic superiority is not far away. The idea of ethnic purity often is tied to ethnic superiority. So how do we understand something like this? Does this apply today in an ethnic sense? They're committing, we're not going to marry these foreign nations, these other ethnicities around us. Does this apply today? As a matter of fact, how here'd be a way to ask it, does this passage apply to interracial, interethnic marriage? Is that what they're committing to? And is that what the scripture calls Christians to commit to today? In the history of the church in this country, the answer sadly has frequently been yes indeed that 's what the scripture does call uh, not only in this passage but in other passages that they would this would be a passage they would use to reflect that, but there would be other passages that they would look at for that and I want to comment on this a moment uh, because it 's not the main point of this text, but it 's the central misunderstanding and misapplication of this text that has plagued the church in this country for generations. Uh, February, this month, is Black History Month, and so I decided this is not something I've done uh, regularly, but I decided this year to read uh, in the month of February on black history, so I'm reading a book uh, on the history of racist ideas in America, because racist practice always has a fundamental ideology underlining it. and. Uh, So as I've read, I've just been able to see from the founding of our country, and sadly from the church, the founding Protestants of our country, founding Puritans of our country, that it was very common that there were certain theological arguments that were very, uh, by their very nature racist that led to things like a ban on interracial marriage. Um, When I was born, and I'm a wee lad, but when I was born, I didn't know this, but when I was born, interracial marriage was illegal and prosecuted in 16 southern states in the U.S. It wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court declared, 1967, it wasn't until then that the Supreme Court declared uh, states that had um, banned interracial marriage that that was unconstitutional. Uh, Not until then. And it's interesting, in the case, the Virginia case, uh, that went before the Supreme Court, the original judge who handed down the sentencing on a black man, I'm sorry, a, a, a white man that married a black woman and they were, uh, had married in another area, moved to Virginia and were arrested. Uh, and in the sentencing that came down, the argument from the judge was theological. This was a theological argument that was the common understanding of way too many conservative churches in the history of our country, 1967, this was his quote, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. In other words, unless people were meddling with what God had done, we wouldn't even have this mess, that's what he's saying. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend the races to mix. That's historic Bible Belt Christianity. And what is behind that idea is the same thing that's been argued among many from texts like this. But that is not what this text or similar texts in the Bible are about. When God forbids his people from marrying other ethnicities. It's also not the idea found in the New Testament where Colossians 3 tells us there's no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. The New Testament tells us that marriage represents Christ and his love for the church. And that paradigm is expressed beautifully through an interracial marriage among Christians. Two people joined together with him. So as a church, we have uh, interracially married couples in our church. We not only welcome, but celebrate celebrate interracial marriage. Marriage, Because the Bible never frowns on that. The Bible says that we are one in Christ. And um, so that is not, when it says you cannot marry the nations around you, it's not talking about ethnicity. It's talking, uh, God is talking about faith. The people refuse to marry those from the surrounding nations because, as a people in covenant with God, they don't want to marry idolaters who are not in covenant with God. That's the idea of the passage. Because throughout Israel's history, foreign spouses meant foreign gods. When you married uh, someone from another uh, religion with different gods. You brought your God, they brought their God, you joined the gods together in the house. And that was fine for all the nations around them because they were polytheistic. But that was not okay for Israel because Israel said, uh, we have one God. That's Deuteronomy 6. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. So you cannot believe in the one God and be in covenant with the God of the Bible and then in turn have relationship in marriage joining your life to someone who has many gods. Here's where we see the the ban on intermarriage is, is seen in Deuteronomy 7. This is the heart behind it. It's not color of skin or ethnicity. This is the idea behind it. Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's the idea. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. God's renewed people are saying, God is first in our families, God is first in our marriage, so we are pledging ourselves to only marry people who are in covenant with Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God that we read of in the Old Testament. We'll only marry those who know God, we'll only marry those who follow God, so that we can raise the next generation... To know God, to be faithful to God, so that we can build our families with other families, to live under God's word, to represent him to the nations. This is not ethnic purity that's being argued for. This is spiritual purity. This is religious purity. This is avoiding idolatry. Because whenever Israel compromised and married people from the surrounding nations, what always happened was that they took other gods for themselves and their faith was compromised. We see this, with, we see this all over the Bible. But we're going to see this in chapter 13 of Nehemiah when they do it. We're going to see the problems that it causes. We see Solomon, who, uh, Solomon was one who took on foreign wives. The message is the same in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't forbid marrying someone from a different country, someone from a different race, someone with a different language, someone with a different culture, someone with a different skin color, someone with a different... The, The New Testament does not forbid that. The New Testament forbids marrying someone who is not a Christian. Think, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 39. Verse 39 It says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if you're married, your spouse dies, you can marry anybody you want as long as they're a Christian. I'm not saying it's wise to marry any Christian. There might be some questions to ask uh, about that person Uh, besides are they a Christian, I mean, there may be other things uh, to ask about that in building a relationship that uh, is going to lead to marriage, but the limiter in the New Testament is faith in Christ. So there is a significant principle here for us to talk about. If you are single, and I don't take this for granted, I mean, I haven't taught on this much at all, But I'm not taking it for granted. If you are a single Christian, you're here as a single adult or a college student or a high school student, even a middle school student, you need to make a foundational commitment that the people here are making I will only marry a Christian, I will only marry in the Lord. And if you commit to only marrying a Christian, which is the principle of this passage that transfers today, if you commit to only marrying a Christian, that means you've committed to only dating a Christian. Act. So, so the question is, when you seek to pursue a relationship, what is the person's relationship with God? What is their relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it an authentic, sincere walk with Christ? If not, then I'm not gonna pursue an intimate romantic relationship with that person. Friendship, sure, but a relationship that that is romantic in nature that could lead to marriage. So if I can make the point again, race is not a determining factor as to who you should date or marry. Active faith in Christ is a determining factor as to who you should date or marry. It's a little bit about how this is misapplied and how it is appropriately applied. And If I can offer a word of testimony, I um, grew up in a family with a mixed marriage, not racially mixed, both my parents are white, but a spiritually mixed marriage. My dad was not a believer. My mom was a believer. And with no disrespect to my dad, my mom from the youngest age drilled into the kids, marry a believer. Because she was in an unequally yoked marriage which presented tremendous difficulties and, and does, no matter how wonderful the unbeliever is, they may be wonderful. They, they may have more character than half the Christians in this room. They might be kinder. Uh, they might be more generous. I'm not saying that an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't have wonderful character qualities or something like that. They do. What I'm saying is this. If the goal of your life is to love and honor Jesus... If the goal of your life is to love others and to build your life together in his church and to pass that on to the next generation, then you must look for a spouse and marry someone with that same goal. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying they may be a great person, they may be great. Seriously, I've met plenty of unbelievers that I say are nicer than I am and nicer than most of you. (laughs) But it's not nice. It's not attractive, it's not good, we're not talking about values or morals, we're talking about what's the goal of your life, what were you created for, what is God's purpose for you? You must find someone to join your life with that purpose, that's what matters. Now, if you are a Christian in a mixed marriage, I'm not talking about this to you. a spiritually mixed marriage. I'm addressing people who've yet to choose a partner. If you are in a spiritually mixed marriage, then there is much grace and much hope for you. Starting with this, God converts sinners. And if he converted you, he can convert your spouse. And so let's join with you to pray for you. And to help you and to support you, to love your spouse, to become friends with your spouse. Your spouse is not going to be treated any differently here. We will love your spouse, care for him or her. Uh, and, and allow your small group in particular to rally around you and your family as a means of support in that way. So I'm not in any way denigrating someone who is married to an unbeliever. I grew up in a home like that. Okay, I'm not denigrating that. My whole charge is to speak to people who haven't chosen a marriage partner because that's what this passage is about. If you have made that choice, there is much grace, there is much there's community for you in the body of Christ. There's fellowship for you that you may not have a shared purpose with Christ in your marriage, but you can have it here in the church uh, with friends. So the renewed people of God are saying, we're going to put God first in our families. And that starts with how we start our family with our marriage choice. We're not going to give our sons or daughters. We're not going to marry people from the other nations, not because of the color of their skin, but because of their God's. Because of their gods. Number two, first with our time. Look at verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Listen, a distinguishing mark of Israel was the Sabbath day. The seventh day of the week, which was Saturday, they were called to not do work, not do their normal labor. They weren't to do their job, they were to rest, they were to worship, they were to fellowship, they were to serve others. And so on this day it was patterned after God who worked six days to create uh, the world and then on the seventh day he rested. So it was on that pattern, they were to rest from normal labors and this was a tremendous gift from God. It applied to them, it applied to their children, it applied to those who worked for them, it applied to their animals. God cares about animals, it gave gave the animals a rest one day a week, those that worked, uh, you know, in in farming and that sort of a thing. So it gave everyone a rest and it caused the people to trust God, especially like in harvest time, like we got to get out there and harvest, we can't take a day off, especially when you had a subsistence income and you need seven days, you need the hours of seven days to make enough to live. So it was a step of faith which says, God, we're not working today. I hope you see that because we need goods and supplies and money and everything else. Now, here's the thing. Foreigners, obviously, weren't called to that. As a matter of fact, this is such a choice gift. None of the nations around Israel took a day of rest for their gods. No one did that. People worked culturally seven days a week. And so this is a gift, and they are to demonstrate it's a gift. No one else does it. Why don't you guys work on the seventh day? Why don't you do this? What is this? Chick-fil-A? How come you're not, we want want chicken. What are you doing? Well, it gave a reason to say, well, here's why we do it. Because it's a day that God's given us as a gift. We get to rest. We're taking it off. How about you? God is good. God's going to, well, what if you don't have, God's going to provide for us. It's a day that we worship our God, our one God. It's the day that we worship him. So it made a difference. So foreigners aren't held to that. So it says if they bring their goods, so they will come in and bring their goods and sell to Israel. So this is a loophole in the Sabbath law. You know, they would come in and sell their stuff. And so they're saying, look, we're not going to work. We we are going to rest. We're going to worship. We're going to fellowship. And we're not going shopping. When they bring their stuff in, we're not going to buy any of it. Because it's a distraction to the purpose of the day, just as it could easily lead into something else. I mean, very easily, you buy something for them. Oh, I've got something to sell to you too. Oh, now I'm working and doing my job, and I'm not getting a break. So God, they're saying, God, we submit our time to you. We give you that seventh day. We give it to you in faith. It honors you, and it's a witness to those around us. How does this apply to us? I tried to apply the marriage one. How does this apply to us today? Well. Um, The New Testament doesn't enforce Sabbath law in the same way as the Old Testament, but the principle is still relevant. You must rest. God calls us all to rest one day in seven. God calls us all to uh, worship. Our bodies and minds need rest. Our whole being needs worship of him. Uh, We need to take time off from our work and set it aside to be in worship with God, which I don't need to convince you of that, you're here, uh, and to be in fellowship with family and friends and others. This is the way of putting him first. And I love in the Christian tradition, we particularly put him first because we don't gather on the seventh day, we gather on the first day, Sunday Sunday most people in our culture think of Monday as the first day of the week, but Sunday is the first day of the week. And we gather on Sunday because that was the day Christ resurrected. So here's what you're saying, whether you knew this or not. Here's what, well, here's what we want to be saying. You may be here for any number of reasons. Uh, maybe your parents drug you here or something, I don't know. But uh, whatever reason you're here, here's the reason we should be here. Because we're saying, God, I'm putting you first with my time. So the first day of the week, the first morning of the week, I don't start with my activity. I don't start with my job. I don't start with my work. I start with worshiping you. You are first with my week. And guess what? I love this. The week starts with rest. That's the message of the Christian life. You're, you're not a Christian because of your works. You're a Christian because you gave up. And you rest and say, I do nothing. You did it all to save me. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection for my sins, that's how I'm forgiven. And Jesus' perfect life that's credited to me, that's how I'm made righteous or declared righteous before God. So Lord, my relationship with you is not based on my works. My relationship with you is based on what you have done that I have received as a gift by faith. And when we worship on Sunday, it makes that very clear. We're here resting to start our week. We're not starting our week by showing up with a list of our good works of all that we've done this week, God to impress you we're starting the week off and all we've done is show up and you are glorious it's a day of rest it's a day of worship to put him first and so application is, there can be all kinds of applications for us here you know one is to prioritize gathering uh, weekly on the first day of the week with, with the church if you're from another church it's whatever church you're a part of not this church but wherever you are God calls us together. It's a day to set aside rest so that we're not filling our minds with work. It's a day some, for some of us need to be wise and have a day of tech rest where we're not doing email and work texts and all that kind of stuff, but we're, we're, we're taking a break for the Lord. So you're first in our marriages. You're first in our time. So they haven't done those things. They've, mar- they've married foreigners. They've worked seven days a week and done whatever they want with their time. Saying, Lord, it's different now. And lastly, you're first with our resources. You may have noticed in verse 32, we take an obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel. You bring your shekel today? So uh, that's what, it's, but actually, being first with resources starts before that. Look up at verse 31 We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So, before we get to the giving to the house of the Lord, they steward their resources by saying this this was God's law. Every seventh year, you can't grow anything. You can't proactively work on your crops. Now, you talk about a step of faith. Like, what are we going to eat this year? God promised to give triple in the sixth year. Amazing. That's what the Old Testament says. So, you're going to have more than enough. But you don't uh grow the seventh year you trust god now that was a provision for the poor so what did grow you were to give away because even if you didn't cultivate the land would produce uh, something by the way the seventh year the land rested god cares about the creation god cares about the animals god cares about the land and lets it rest god doesn't say here's all the resources, here's all the natural resources, do with it whatever you want for your own good. We're to respect that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So it lets them rest. But here's, here's the, that's a separate point, Aldi, that's a different sermon. Uh, that's a green sermon. I, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that today. But when you read your Bible, you will, oh boy, I could get in trouble. You're going to find this, The reason I never talk about conservative values from this pulpit and never will, and the reason I never talk about liberal values from this pulpit and never will, I will only talk about biblical values. Because when you read your Bible, you will find modern day, in our culture, what's viewed as liberal and conservative, you will find both in the scripture. You will find conservative values in the scripture, you will find more progressive liberal values in the scripture, and you find both of those in this text. So, I'm not going to animal care and land care and environment care, but it's there. So, they rested the land the seventh year. Okay? So, here was the reason they did that. Exodus 23 says, the crops will grow and produce something, and you can't touch it. It's all for the poor. It's all for the poor. So, in this nation state of Israel which is a theocracy, it's both the church and state together. In this nation-state, there was institutionalized means to care for the poor. And it was many ways, but one way was, in the seventh year, you cannot grow your crop, it's for the poor. And scholars think that it was much later that this was synchronized, that the seventh years were synchronized. They, they thought, usually, it was out of sync crop to crop, area to area, people to people, so that at any given time there would have been a seventh year somewhere for modest uh, food provided for the poor. So they were called to give to the poor individually, called to be generous to the poor personally, but there was also a means among Israel to care for those in need. That's also the point with the exaction of every debt, the exaction of every debt. That means we, on the seventh year you were to forgive all debts, And debts in this day were not because someone wanted to go on a fancy vacation and put it on a credit card that they couldn't afford. It wasn't consumer debt. Debt here was because someone died and they couldn't take care of their land because they got ill and couldn't grow a crop because there was a famine. So people that were in debt were the poor who could not care for themselves. So it says every seventh year you release the debt of the poor because God was more concerned with the poor being cared for than he was with the creditor making money off the poor. So that was God's value for them. You're committed, to, they, they were committed to the poor. So when it says, you're, when I say you're first with my resources, that's first with your crops, first with your food. Lord, it's yours and you're calling us in your law to care for those in need. And that's two ways we do it in the seventh year, which was called the sabbatical. So there's the Sabbath and the sabbatical they also commit to funding the worship of the temple look at verse 32 we take on ourselves to give a third part of a shekel I can't tell you how much that is I read there's different opinions Uh, it's a weight uh, it's a weight so, it's, it's probably like two fifths of an ounce, is what the ESV says here. Uh, so, it could have been a shekel of silver or, or whatever. Likely it was that. A third of a shekel. So, you paid a temple tax annually. By Jesus' time, it's half a shekel. Inflation, I know. So, by Jesus' 400 years later, 400 years later, they're paying half a shekel. They're paying a third of the shekel. And what's that used for? Well, that is used to fund the house of the God. of God. He says it's for showbread, it's for the grain offering, it's for the burnt offerings, it's for the Sabbath. So all the gatherings, that's going to help fund that. Uh, it's going to fund the feasts. So it's kind of a party celebration fund, uh, the sin offerings to make atonement. So it's given to fund the ministry of the temple. In addition, there was the wood offering. This is very interesting. Verse 34, they cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to the father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. The altar in the temple was always to be burning and so the people provided the wood to burn. And this is a great offering because the poor could easily participate in this offering. It didn't require money necessarily. I suppose you could buy firewood or something maybe, I don't know. But if you were poor, you could go gather firewood and participate. So they took a, it's like the snack sign up at community group. Everybody signed up. They've cast lots. This is your month or this is your week or I don't know how it worked, but this is your slot. So you bring wood and rich and poor alike could participate in that offering. But it was the people's responsibility to fund the burning of the altar. Then it says, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. And as I study, and firstborn, as I study that this week, I realize this is a hefty commitment to generosity. The first fruits were the initial part of the harvest. And so, the very first part of the harvest that they receive, they don't eat, they take to the temple or to the gathering spots where they lived in outlying areas, and they give it. They bring it, here it says, uh, to bring the first fruits year by year to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of the Lord. So they bring fruit, whatever comes from the ground, verse 38. They bring whatever they grow on trees, their fruit trees, they bring that. Uh, they also bring animals, the firstborn of uh, cattle, um, the firstborn of the herds, the firstborn of their flocks. So when there's, a, when there's birth, the first animal goes to the temple and you give that. They were used in sacrifices and such. Now here's what's interesting. I always thought, yeah, the first fruit of your crops. Also the first fruit of what your crops produce. So the first of your dough you bring, verse 37. The the fruit of every tree, the first of your wine. So you don't just bring the first of the crops of grapes, but after it ferments and you have wine, you bring the first of your wine. And the first of the oil, so it's it's uh, it's not just the first of your olives, but once it's made into oil, you bring that. So it's not just the fruit, but the products that the fruit makes to the priest, to the chambers of our God. So they bring the first fruits and the firstborn. They also bring the firstborn of their sons. Verse thirty six: the firstborn of our sons. Now this doesn't mean that you. Go to drop Junior off at the temple and say, we'll pick him up when he's 18 or whatever. That's, that's not what they're doing. They didn't want Junior. Uh, you're fine. But what you did was you paid a redemption tax. Uh, a redemption, maybe not a tax. That's not the right word. An offering would be a better word. Uh, redemption offering. Uh, so that when you were given by God a gift, your first child, gift of God, to recognize the gift of God, you brought the kid down to the temple and you, you gave an offering. To recognize God's giving to you. On top of all that, and really, I think the first fruits and firstborns the biggest part of it, on top of that, they also gave uh, tithes. So it says, uh, let's see. I lost my place. Verse uh, 37, "Bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground." It's very specific. it's limited and specific. Bring tithes from the ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns. And then the Levites collected all the tithes from the ground and then they take a tenth of that. Tithe means 10%. They take 10% of that and they take it to the temple. Why is it just from the ground? Why don't they tithe off everything they make? Why don't they tithe off everything? Well, because it's a sign that God owned the ground. God gave them the land. So 10% of everything the land produced was given to him to recognize the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that God had provided for his people. Now, how do we apply this section? So we got marriage. That was fairly easy. We've got Uh, Sabbath day. That was somewhat easy. How do we apply this? This is more complex because we live in a very different world. But the principle of what's being communicated here is the same. They're they're saying, God, because you have been merciful to us, we are going to commit ourselves to generous giving. And they spell it out super specifically. We're going to commit ourselves to generous giving. The last verse, 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. We are going to contribute to what you are doing in our community as the people of God. So what does that look like for you and me who have no idea what a shekel is and wouldn't know, can I carry that in my pocket or how do I bring my shekel? The church doesn't need you, Grace Church, the people of God, we don't need you to participate in a wood offering. We don't need wood, we're not burning anything. We are not collecting the first fruits of your dough and your wine and your oil, and we don't uh, need a tithe from your ground, which would mean most of you would never tithe because you don't grow anything. And those of you that do, those of you that produce 20, sorry, tomatoes this spring, we don't want two of them. (laughs) We don't want two of your tomatoes, okay? Okay. Don't be li- overly, don't be overly literal with Old Testament application of the law. And by the way, the next baby dedication that we do, we're not collecting a thousand bucks a head for everybody that brings their firstborn. Though I'm sure some church fundraising person has thought of that. I'm sure someone has said, it's in the Bible, thousand bucks ahead, that's how we're building a building. I think the principle is we're to prioritize our giving as Christians. We're saying, God, you come first in my finances and I will not neglect the house of the Lord. What does that mean tangibly? In the New Testament, we're called to generous, regular, faithful giving as we determine in our hearts, is what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 teaches. We are to do it generously. What I appreciate about this passage is that it's very specific, and so I would encourage you to have a specific definition of generosity because vague notions of I'm giving by grace generously uh, often are not really generous. It's when I spell out, God, here's my commitment to you. Uh, which we've done that in like making a pledge for our building fund or something like that. You had to think and pray and spell it out. There's something very healthy when I've gone through that exercise because it's down in the specifics. So you need to determine what is specific. And while a tithe was very limited it was only your ground it wasn't everything you sold or made Uh, and it was part of a much bigger system which first fruits may have been more than tithes there was taxes and all this kind of stuff redemption fees for your kids you get it wood offerings while it was a very big system kind of at the heart of it that we find in other passages was the tithe and while it's not a requirement in the new testament to tithe uh, 10% is not a New Testament requirement, neither is it an irrelevant figure without biblical precedent. It certainly has precedent. So if you are wondering where should I start giving, how should I, what should my goal be, that is certainly a wise one, I think. It's a wise practice. That's a goal for me as 10%. Or maybe you already give that and you say, you know what, I want to be stretched in generosity and caring for the house of God. I also want to my time. That was that wood offering thing. That took time because there's not a lot of trees where they are. You had to go out and find it. So I want to give my time. I want to give my finances. I want to be generous. Um, that, That giving is sacrificial because of the grace of Christ to us. This looks very detailed and even a little bit daunting, but grace should always produce more than law. The grace of Christ. These people don't even know Jesus and they're making these commitments. These people don't even have an empty tomb to celebrate when they gather and they're making these commitments. And so we want to be moving in generosity. And uh, a tithe can be a, a place to hang, a place to connect, a place to be specific for you. Or maybe it's different, but I would encourage you to have something specific that you are working towards uh, and that you are seeking to grow in. And I'm wanting to say I'm seeking to grow in annually. And the, the funds were used in the same way. What are these funds used for? Well, it was used for the ministry of the temple. It was used to provide for the priests and the levites. It was used to care for the poor. And ultimately it was used for their mission, which is a little bit different than ours, but it's the same today. When we give to the local church, it's used to fund the ministry, we're not burning an altar, but we do have lights on and heat on some Sundays. Uh, uh, that's a joke, uh, but so and supplies and uh, all that goes on to fulfill the building, paying a mortgage. Uh, we also provide for a few people that do, I'm one of them that do this full time, so that mirrors what happens among priests and Levites. We also uh, care for the poor with what's given. We also fund mission, which for us is mission outward uh, among um, many different ways that we fulfill mission uh, out among us, investing our money and giving beyond our own walls. So to review, the people are exposed to God's word. They experience conviction. They review his faithfulness, chapter 9. He has always been faithful, even when they aren't. And they said, we're getting specific. We're repenting, Lord. You've been good to us, and we want to honor you, love you, serve you. And we're getting specific. We're going to do marriage different. We're going to do time differently. We're going to do finances differently. And God calls us to the same, to honor God with our families, our time and our finances. Now, I don't know what God is calling you to uh, beyond this, but it's helpful at times when we consider the. Where I was really convicted in this passage, it wasn't just one verse; it was the whole concept of review the grace of God in His history to us, and respond with repentance and joy in specifics. That's where that's the heart of this. So, what are the specifics for you in your relationships? What is God calling you to do? What is calling you to commit yourself to? Maybe it has something to do with a a relationship. Maybe it has something to do with your work. Maybe it has something to do with your outreach and your, your Gospel evangelism. Maybe it has something to do in your marriage. Maybe it has something to do with your devotional life reading the scripture or prayer and fasting a tangible specific commitment to the lord maybe it has to do with serving maybe it has to do with giving or resting or parenting or relating i I don't know what god's calling you to i'm offering you three here to think about that i think we should all respond to but it may be something else that god's calling you to today the mercy of god the kindness of god leads us to repentance and repentance is spelled out in specifics because we serve Jesus, who is always faithful to us, even when we're not faithful in these areas or other areas, we'll get a fresh start. Get a fresh start today. Even if you have not been faithful with your time, even if you've not been faithful with your finances, you can come and repent today. Ask God's forgiveness and you get a fresh start. That's the beauty of grace, asking him to help you in specifics. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at org.